From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Right now, though, we are starting the show talking about something that is happening in New Westminster. That is where the city council deferred a debate over the mayor's attendance at a climate change summit in Dubai. They deferred it to a future sitting, and this was a rather heated meeting that took place on Monday. Both councillors, Daniel Fontaine and Paul Minhas of the New Westminster Progressives, raised questions about Mayor Patrick Johnstone's participation in the COP28 summit. That's the climate change summit. The mayor was not at that meeting. Then another councillor argued it would be an inappropriate debate to have at that time because the mayor wasn't there to answer the questions. But I'm pleased to say Mayor Patrick Johnstone is here with us now. Mayor Johnstone, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, good afternoon, Jill. Uh, who paid for uh, the conference for you and the other staff member from New Westminster to go and attend this conference in Dubai? So the, our participation as a city, along with that of a half a dozen other cities in Canada and 100 from around the world, were covered by uh, C40 cities and by the organizers of COP28. And are there any concerns? One of the questions being raised is that there is an actual rule when it comes to taking gifts or having uh, groups pay for trips like this, uh, for, to take free trips from, say, lobby groups or special interest groups. Where, did this follow those rules? So this is not a gift. Um, I mean, this was a sponsorship the city received along with other cities. So, And yes, all the rules were followed. So it's not a gift when somebody pays for you to go and attend a conference in Dubai? Yeah, when the city is sponsored to take part in an event like this, um, yes, it, is, it doesn't constitute a gift to me. It is, uh, yeah, it was a sponsorship the city provided, was provided. All right. Do you know how much it cost? No, I don't actually. Do you have so any- I, I, Yeah, no, I mean, C40 Cities, was again, they were doing this arrangements for 100-odd cities. And uh, they effectively did all of the arrangement of travel and everything. So we, I never saw any costs related to that. Um, I don't know what registration for the conference and everything costs. So I don't know what that was as far as COP28. Um, and as far as my own expenses, I didn't claim any expenses of the city for meals or travel or anything. So it didn't cost the city anything. All right. But as far as the trip itself, so everything was covered as far as the flights, the attendance, whatever fees it was to go to the conference, hotel rooms and that, food, that kind of thing? That's correct. So it would have been a pretty expensive trip. I imagine it would have, especially when you're moving 100 uh, mayors and their staff from all around the world into the same place. So I imagine it was a pretty significant event. But, I mean, the LCAS, the Local Climate Action Summit, which was the part of COP28 that we were invited to take part in, it's part of the UN uh, uh, Framework Conference for Climate Change process now. Since the Paris Agreement, when uh, it was agreed by all the national governments that subnational governments, which means regional and local governments, need to be brought into the process and given an opportunity to take part in the negotiations. So this was the first COP event where that uh, that uh, mandate that came down from Paris was actually exercised. So is there a benefit, do you think, or having a, a municipal mayor, a civic mayor like yourself and a staff member go to this conference where I was looking at estimates that said there were anywhere from 70,000 to 90,000 delegates. Is there a benefit to the city of New Westminster? Absolutely. Uh, New Westminster as a city is taking climate action seriously. 
Iran on a firm air saying I was going to continue to take climate action seriously. Our our um, strategic plan for council says we are going to do this work and do climate work. So this is part of that. Um, the ability to meet with our cohort cohort from across um, from across Canada and from other jurisdictions like the United States and Europe and South America, and share our experiences, talk about the things that we are doing well here and the things that they're doing well there. The ability to learn from the people who are doing the same kind of work as you is phenomenal. It's incredible for the city. It was a good opportunity for the city to take part. It was also good for the city to be represented there and to stand on that stage next to cities like Halifax and Guelph and Hoboken and Bogota that are doing climate action. It's good for us to be there. But isn't there a certain irony or even a certain hypocrisy that here we are flying people in uh, planes that are heavy emitters. We're going to this conference with tens of thousands of people. You're flying to Dubai, this trip being paid for. Granted, taxpayers didn't have to pay for it, but you're flying to Dubai to have a conference and talk with other mayors from places like Halifax and Guelph. Yeah, it's well, it's not just mayors from Halifax and Guelph. We were there with, again, people from all around the world. And uh, it's an opportunity once a year for, for people to actually doing this work to get together. And um, yes, I think that it is always a speaking point that people who are trying to make change and trying to uh, move the dial forward on something that is a global issue still have to operate in that globe and still have to operate within the systems that exist. So yes, there is an inherent, uh, an inherent hypocrisy in living in a society where we are reliant on fossil fuels while arguing that we have to stop being so reliant on fossil fuels. But that's the nature of, of, of how it works. That's what we're trying to do at COP. Um, we are standing there together saying that um, this, our society needs to move past and beyond fossil fuels or we're not going to make it. And yeah, we need fossil fuels to get us into that conversation and we need to put together the systems that we no longer need to rely on fossil fuels even to have meetings like this. Uh, the One of the other questions that was being raised about this was the fact that council didn't know about this in advance, uh, that people found out about it, that you were uh, sharing uh, information about it on social media, but that council didn't know that this was happening, didn't have any uh, knowledge of it before it took place. Why was that? Um, you know, I can't tell you how or when the councillor who raised those questions learned of the trip. I can tell you that um, I had a... I was promoted in from Dubai to a meeting on December 4th to a workshop at the city where he mentioned the fact that I was there and didn't seem surprised or shocked by it then. So it feels disingenuous to me for him a month later to send out a press release suggesting that he's shocked or surprised that I was there and to send that out when I'm out of town and can't respond. Uh, It seemed very disingenuous. But I want to say there is no previous practice or policy in the city where the mayor has to inform all members of council in advance of attending a conference. Um, I did not inform Councillor Fontaine in advance when I went to UBCM. I did not inform him in advance when I went to the CSPG this year, the Canadian Society of Police Governance. It's simply not a practice we have. Um, you know, other councillors have gone to conferences this year and have not informed council ahead of time. That's not a policy or practice we have in the city. And um, it seems surprising to me that he would find try to find controversy in me following our standard practice and somehow inventing a policy or a practice that we've never had. It it doesn't seem, it seems disingenuous to me.
Uh, all right. So on that issue then uh, about uh, about the whether council knew or didn't know, and I, I don't think really that's what, what people, if people are paying attention to this or, or have questions about this, are, are probably stuck on. But it's more of the fact that, that you are the mayor of New Westminster and you were elected to be the leader of, of that council. And, and on a civic level, there are certain things that people expect. And they're very, you know, as far as garbage cleanup, they expect uh, <laughs> uh, to run the city. And, and I guess the question is, is it appropriate or is it really valuable for the mayor to be going to Dubai, to be meeting with mayors from other Canadian cities and other cities around the world? Uh, what what value is that actually going to bring that, that I mean... Everybody in New Westminster could stop driving and turn their lights off. It's not going to make an impact on world emissions. So what value is actually coming to the city? Okay, well, there's a few questions in there that I want to get to. Um, you know, we, in, we no longer have the luxury <laughs> as local governments to only deal with garbage cleanup. Um, cities are at the front line of the climate challenge. We are where 78% of global emissions are being generated. And we are where the impacts of climate disruption are being felt from heat domes to floods to wildfire smoke it is being felt in cities and as the mayor of a city where the heat dome event two years ago killed 28 people um, i have a hard time telling folks that i have no role in addressing the root cause of that we can do this work we have to do this work and no one has to stop doing garbage pickup in order to do that work no one did stop doing garbage pickup in order for me and for our climate staff to do that work so you had a bit in there, like, what can little New Westminster do? You're, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, at the opening of the event, uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, said that, um, you know, COP conferences, this conference isn't going to mend the climate. It's not. And these meetings every year are not going to do, are not, they're about, they're about the work, but they are not the work. Only governments working together and governments of every size empowered to take action will make a difference. And this is why COP has brought local governments into the process, because they recognize this work has to be done at the local government level and has to be led at the local government level. And our job in local governments is to stand in front of those national governments and those international negotiators and say, if you want to achieve your goals, you have to give us local governments the tools that we need to get that work done. This is going to be debated, I believe, and talked about more uh, upcoming at the next New yeah, West Council yeah, meeting. Yeah, you said the debate was deferred last meeting. That is incorrect, unfortunately. The debate was not deferred that last last um, sorry last council meeting on Monday. The debate was not actually on the agenda. There was no debate on the agenda for this. There was an information report on the agenda, mm. but um, it was not there for discussion. It was there as an information report. The standard practice in our city is to, if there's an information report that councillors want to raise debate from, then it comes to the following meeting. That is the standard practice we take. So we, oh. no debate was deferred when I was away on vacation. The debate was not coming to council, and I'm fully prepared at the next council meeting to have this discussion with Councillor Fontaine. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Mayor, I appreciate you making the time and coming on the show today. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and to get the story straight. Thank you. Well, if you were caught in the commute yesterday, you know all too well how there were pileups on many roads. In many cases, people were abandoning their vehicles and it was pretty treacherous and it took people a long time to get to where they were going in many cases. Get out the road, save the car! No, not this one too! Oh, oh, oh. 
that kind of sums up what was happening on some of the streets. Cars smashing into others as people tried to get home. At one point, there were fire departments telling people, stay home. That was the message from a fire captain in Burnaby talking about the multiple incidents ongoing and telling people that they should avoid driving unless absolutely necessary. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Trace Akers, the program director at Road Safety at Work. Trace, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. What is your response when you, uh, look, we knew it was coming. The forecast had ice, cold temperatures, snow, and still we saw that chaos yesterday. Well, a couple of things come to mind uh, when you're talking about that. And one is uh, following distance. When conditions get icy like this, you really do need to allow more space between yourself and the vehicle in front of you, which we know in the lower mainland can be tricky because if you do allow space between yourself and the vehicle in front of you, somebody will often cut in front of you. So you just have to keep backing off and backing off and making sure that you're not right on the bumper of the vehicle in front of you because if that person has to come to a quick stop, um, chances are you're going to run into them if it's icy. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that I thought of uh, in your introduction was the time. Um, Yeah, it's going to take a lot longer to get to work or to get home from work when conditions are like this. So make sure you give yourself lots of time. Uh, As we say, uh, what you want to really do is to make sure you get there safely rather than get there quickly. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned the tire, or the space between the vehicles, and that was one of the major incidents yesterday. And originally, we thought it was worse. The original reports were that there was a 25 car pileup. Uh, I'm not sure it makes it all that much better that uh, Richmond RCMP confirmed it was a 17 car pileup. 17 cars involved in this crash on Highway 91, and that was the eastbound stretch between the S curve and Westminster Highway. It, that seems like a lot of vehicles to be involved in a smash-up, but is that a case of that's what happens when people don't leave enough space? And travel too fast. Um, We all have to remember that speed limits are set uh, as the maximum allowable speed under ideal driving conditions. And when conditions are not ideal, you want to slow down. So slow down and definitely leave more space between yourself and the vehicle in front of you. And uh, hopefully that'll keep everybody, uh, everybody safe. Do we uh, have an over-reliance as well, or do we expect too much or get overly confident with winter tires, thinking, well, I've got winter tires, I'll be fine? Yeah, and uh, the the term winter tires, I'm glad you use that because a lot of people still use the term snow tires. And the correct term is winter tires because real winter tires are designed to function better and give you better grip in lower temperatures. And of course, that's what we're dealing with right now. We're not dealing with a lot of snow, but we're dealing with lower temperatures. Um, And preparing yourself now is probably a little too late because it's too late to run out and get a fresh set of winter tires. But there's certainly a couple of things you can do to help yourself. One is to check and make sure that your tires are in good shape. If they're not in good shape, then maybe you should be taking the police advice and to stay off the roads. Um, And the other thing you can do, especially as temperatures drop, is to check your tire pressure because your tire pressure will decline as temperatures decline. So you've got to make sure that your tires are functioning at the optimal level.
I would imagine there were a lot of people on the roads yesterday that didn't follow that advice or, or, or didn't do that before heading out. What about maintenance of the roads and how, how important is that? And, and not to overly depend on it, but we, we talk about cities, uh, the city of Port Coquitlam, I know the mayor there, Brad West, made a point of saying that all of the streets, everyone in that city had been uh, treated, uh, crews had been out salting or, or brining or whatever they were doing to make them to make them not as slick. How important is it that that cities are are taking that and being proactive there? Well, I think generally cities do a pretty good job of uh, of being uh, prepared, especially in the lower mainland where we don't see a lot of cold temperatures. We don't see a lot of snow, so uh, being prepared when it does hit on those odd occasions uh, is. Uh, is obviously important, but uh, something that all the municipalities have to be ready for. Um, but it's it's also no substitute for safe driving, um, it, it, regardless of how well the roads are planned or sanded or salted. Uh, you should be leaving still more dry, more following distance between yourself and the vehicle in front of you, and keeping your speed down. And in uh, municipalities, a lot of them in the lower mainland, where uh, we have a lot of hills to deal with. Don't rely so much on your brakes. Uh, think about gearing down if you're having to go down a, a grade and um, uh, keeping your foot off the brake because if it locks up, then you might just end up sliding and uh, then you're in all kinds of trouble. What can you do in that scenario? If you start sliding, is there any way to get out of that? Well, the first thing that people often do is panic and hit the brakes. Um, and uh, and we always say be familiar with how to, de- to gear down because that's probably going to be your best bet or just to stay off those routes altogether. Uh, we always say no before you go, and if your route um, includes some uh, steep grades, uh, think about an alternative route where you, uh, you might not have to encounter such uh, steep grades. There's a video that's making the rounds right now as well, and it's a driver in a vehicle, and exactly that, she's she's going up a, an incline. It's not even a huge incline, but going up the incline yesterday, the uh, the vehicle starts rolling back, and uh, she jumps out of the vehicle and then stands on the side of the road as it smashes into a hedge and kind of clips another vehicle. My guess is that's an example of exactly what you shouldn't do. Exactly, because if you jump out of a moving vehicle, obviously you you risk getting injured, uh, but you may also be risk being hit by another vehicle. Uh, So you certainly don't want to do that. Uh, This is a a case as well where if you don't have winter tires, if you just have all-season tires, which don't function all that well at low temperatures in particular, you want to stay off those routes uh, where you might be encountering some hills. You going back to something you mentioned off the top, because I think that's one of the issues, too, is even if you are being a good driver in this and leaving a lot of space between you and the vehicle in front of you, like you said, oftentimes somebody will just whip in there and fill that space, even though you're really trying to keep it open. Then if you even fall back more, oftentimes somebody will be tailgating you and you know they're right behind you. If you do have to put the brakes on and stop, they're going to come flying into you, which which makes it pretty stressful. Yeah, it sure does. And it's it's almost a no-win situation if you're doing what you should be doing, which is keeping your speed down and allowing lots of uh, distance between yourself and the vehicle in front of you. You're absolutely right. Not everybody's going to see that you're doing that for your own safety and the safety of others. 
So it's uh, it's it's a really tricky one because uh, we would still encourage everybody to drive as safely as possible under those conditions, regardless of whether or not people are cutting in front of you or tailgating you. One other question about vehicles, uh, all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive, front-wheel drive, how big of a difference does that make? Well, it's it, really not a great de- uh, deal of, of difference. Those will help you, those, those uh, all-wheel drive or front-wheel drive, um, uh, four-wheel drive will help you in, from getting stuck or to be able to get out of uh, certain situations. Uh, but they're not going to make it any safer for you to say, well, I've got an all-wheel drive vehicle so I can travel at the speed limit and I don't have to worry about speeds. That's not the case at all. Uh, regardless of uh, whether you've got two-wheel or four-wheel drive, you should be uh, watching speeds and, uh, and keeping that distance between yourself and the vehicle in front of you. It is very good advice. And uh, we mentioned, though, as well, uh, we're not dealing with a lot of snow right now. We're dealing with the cold temperatures and the ice. Is it different also if we do get more snow, what you need to do? Obviously, some of the same things, but dealing with icy roads as opposed to roads that maybe have a bit of snow accumulation. Yeah, the same rules really apply uh, because uh, you're... Your tires uh, will not function as well, especially if they're all-season tires. They're not going to function as well as the temperatures drop. You need to make sure that your tire pressure is still at the optimum level. Um, so it doesn't really matter whether we're dealing with snow or, or cold and icy conditions. The same rules really do apply. And what about electric vehicles? And you mentioned gearing down. Is it different, do you think? Because we do see a lot of electric vehicles. I saw a few Teslas in the footage from yesterday that got caught up in the smashes and the abandoned vehicles as well. Do you think that's making a difference? Well, electric vehicles are really just as safe as, uh, as internal combustion engine vehicles in these conditions. Um, but again, you need to know how to drive them. You need to know how to gear down if that's necessary. And also, one thing that's, that's critical to know about electric vehicles is that they are typically heavier than uh, regular vehicles, so they do require more stopping distance. So in an electric vehicle, you should probably even give yourself more uh, following distance than in a, a regular vehicle. And then the other thing with, uh, with EVs as well is that we know that the battery is going to drain faster in cold temperatures. So you need to make sure you've got a full charge before you go out, especially if you're going on a fairly long trek. Uh, but even if you might be caught in a uh, traffic delay, make sure you've got a full temperature in these conditions. Again, good advice. Trace Akers, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, there is a screening of a new documentary. It is going to be taking place in Vancouver a little bit later on this month. And the film is called Invisible No More. This is just a bit from the trailer. It took a lot of violence in my life to make me a milder man. Never, 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 never give up. I don't give up. I get knocked down, I get back up. And keep believing that I can do it. I'll find a way. 
The film is called Invisible No More, and it talks about and looks at the link between brain injuries and the criminal justice system. And in the film, there are three survivors of brain injury, Derek, Richard, and Jim. And the film looks at their lives and looks at how those two things are connected. The writer and creator of the film, Andy Fiore, is with us on the line now to talk more about this. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jill. I'm very excited. This is such an interesting topic. You are a filmmaker, and your latest documentary, it is called Invisible No More, taking a look at the connection between brain injury and incarceration. Take us back. How did you get involved in doing this? That's a great question, Jill. So I I have a history of incarceration to begin with, and the reason I was incarcerated was because Um, In 1999, I went to Korea to teach English. And when I got there, um, I went through a sort of a culture shock. And I had a psychotic episode. I started to believe people were trying to kill me. People were following me. It was bizarre. I couldn't stay. I had to break the contract. And I ended back in Ontario where I was residing. And I was diagnosed at the Carlisle Medical Health Center with having had a brief psychotic episode. So it wasn't quite schizophrenia. But um, so they put me on olanzapine zyprexa. I took it for 30 days, which is a medication for schizophrenics. And the symptoms lifted. I didn't feel like I was being persecuted anymore or followed. So I stopped taking the drugs because it was expensive for one. I was unemployed. I had just lost a job as a teacher. And what started happening was uh, the symptoms slowly came back. I ended up becoming homeless in Toronto. And then I moved to, well, I took the Greyhound to Vancouver. So for 10 years, I was homeless, running around, hearing voices, and um, struggling, and with a heroin addiction. I was self-medicating. The heroin quieted the voices. And the heroin addiction, uh, I was deeply entrenched in this addiction, uh, and so I was incarcerated for petty theft uh, to support my habit. I ended up working at Insight, the government-sanctioned safe injection site, uh, for one year as a peer-to-peer counselor. It was there in 2006 that I overdosed, and I was dead for six minutes. Uh, when I was revived, the first thought that came into my head was, why did you save me? Because my life had been, was just so horrible. I was inject all of the veins in my arms and legs had collapsed and I was injecting right into my jugular. So um, I, in 2013, I was a recipient of the Courage to Come Back Award and in the mental health category, things changed. And um, just recently, a couple a year ago, I became a support worker for survivors of traumatic brain injury through the Cridge Center for the Family, which I owe a great deal to because they employed me with my criminal record. They took me as is. And, you know, I became the best support worker. I learned so much about brain injury. I endured an optic brain injury because of um, the overdose. And the hospital at St. Paul's, where I was observed, didn't even educate me on what I might be experiencing. So now I have poor sense of direction, I isolate, I I have depression, and I have complex PTSD and post-incarceration syndrome, which means nightmares every night. So slowly but surely, I decided that I wanted to, um, I I started talking to people, professors, interviewed, I interviewed Professor Hugh Williams from Exeter University, who is leading in this area, especially with youth and uh, women through intimate partner violence that are incarcerated. And he shared with me his his, his data and articles, and I was astounded. 80% of people in prison internationally have an undiagnosed brain injury. And so I found the most amazing men who had uh, endured a brain injury in childhood and in adulthood. 
Um, and it led them down this road of incarceration. And the stories of their challenges, and it's just so inspiring. I'm just so grateful that they came on board and that this film is getting so much recognition right now. Well, your story is is an amazing one When uh, from, from where you uh, were at some point. When you say that things changed, what was it that, that changed for you that kind of helped you break that cycle and, 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 get, uh, and get to the place where you are now? Wow, that's an amazing question. I, it's, so when you go to the downtown east side in Vancouver, I was down there, and one of the things that I noticed was all of the people addicted to heroin, even people addicted to whatever, they all get sick and tired of being sick and tired. You reach a point where it just doesn't do anything for you anymore, and you're using just to feel normal. And so I would say 70% of these people, well, most of them, if you talk to Gabor Maté, 90% of them have been sexually abused, uh, emotionally and physically abused, but they want to, and they want to quit. But the resources are just not there. When you say, I want to quit today, detox is full. And so for me, I was very fortunate that in 1999, I made a documentary called Becoming Sound, a healing journey about five people that healed themselves from um, various uh, life-threatening illnesses using alternative treatments. And so I went online and I looked myself up and I was like, that, that was me. That, that was me. I was, I was on this path. I'm a filmmaker. What am I doing? And it was almost like the Boston Strangler, when he went out to commit his first crime, he uh, posed as a serviceman. He got into the house, the apartment, and he was about to strangle the woman and he was in front of the mirror and he saw himself. And he was like, what the, what, what am I doing? And, you know, Albert DeSalvo had a wife and a child, and he ran away. He left. So mirroring that mirror, I saw myself where I was. I was like 99 pounds, and green phlegm was coming out of my nose. I was saved by being arrested. I was dying. And fortunate, lucky for me, I didn't contract HIV or hepatitis C. I was very careful. I never used with anybody. I was a loner. And so when I got to that point, I said, this is it. I'm going to reach out and get out of here. And I found my life partner, Supatura. And she saved me. Well, my guest is Andy Fiore. He is of Fiore Films, and he has just put out a new documentary. It's going to be screening a little bit later this month in Vancouver. And some of these details might be uncomfortable for people, but we're going to talk a little bit more about the three men who are focused on in this documentary, Derek, Richard, and Jim. And Andy, we talked about the film a little bit, how you got involved before the break. How did you get these three individuals to participate in the documentary i cast a wide net because i was looking for funding and i've been successful in the past i've received about seven film grants in about the last seven years but this particular you know uh proposal was rejected by everybody originally it was stories of reintegration it wasn't about brain injury i just wanted to follow inmates coming right out of prison so i wrote to prisoners um i i got on the internet and i got on there's like dating sites for prisoners and they can connect with people uh, some just want to be friends. And so I wrote to like, you know, maybe 50 guys and maybe 10 wrote back. And then, but I lost them all because I mean, when you're in jail and you're, you've got all these hopes and dreams, but when you get out, everything's different. You're like a caged bird and then you're free. So you forget about your, your commitments. And so then I, I went in casting a wide net for funding. I contacted everyone in Victoria because I live in Esquimalt, which is near Victoria. And one of the places was Cridge Center for the Family. And I said, you know, I'm working on this project and 
Jeff Singh from Creech Center for the Family said, that's interesting. Come, we'd like to talk to you. So I talked to Jeff, and he introduced me to a guy named Derek, 85 convictions, prolific offender, brain injured. And Derek and I hit it off. And it, actually, in the beginning, he didn't trust me. And it took, like, I interviewed, like, I, shoot, I shot a 10 to 1 shooting ratio because I learned uh, from CBC producers. I went to Ryerson Radio and Television, and that's who I learned how to make documentaries from. And so Derek, it took so, it's like five or six interviews to finally get him to be comfortable and share his story. But his perform, his story is, it may, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's an important story. It, it deals with a car accident that then triggered uh, criminality. And, and, and so then I put, took out an ad in News Victoria which is interesting, looking for, uh, you know, uh, ex-offender or a person with experience in criminal justice. And this Métis man named Richard contacted me. He was 73. And he told me this story that blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. I actually did pre-interviews over the phone 10 times with him just to confirm that everything he told me was real. And he never wavered. It was the exact same story. And I was astonished. He'd been abused, tortured um, in reformatories. Um, he was sent to the penitentiary at 15. He was abandoned by his mother and parents at five. He was robbing people at the age of seven with a gang just to survive. This man has been to hell and back. I think my story is something. Wow. <laughs> and how Richard facilitates programs for brain-injured children. It's the only organization in Canada. It's called Cultivating Local Yokel Society. I love this man. And I'm going to raise funds for, for him. That's... Um, Jim Mandolin, ex-biker, Jim Mandolin, uh, he, he, oh God, Jim Mandolin was um, sodomized by his father. He was uh, raped by his aunt. Uh, he tried to commit suicide at the age of 11. And he left. He hitchhiked to Vancouver. He joined a biker gang. He got his first hug in jail. And he became an enforcer for them, a loyal one. So these stories are incredible. I'm so, I can't believe it. <laughs> What do you hope people take away from the documentary? I think it's important to understand that prisons are not correctional institutions. Prisons are punishment. And when you go through prison, what we're doing, that Dr. Gabalmante says, we're taking people that have been abused and we're punishing them for being abused. We're taking traumatized people, we're re-traumatizing them. We're taking people that do bad things, not giving them a second chance, not putting them with people that are role models, but putting them with people that where they learn how to do more crime. We're, 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 we're making these people, we're turning them into savages. When you get out, I have a lot of legitimate anger because I was almost murdered three times in jail, and I really don't feel that I should have seen the inside of the jail. I fell through the cracks. And so I have a psychiatrist, I have three counselors, I have so much anger, but I channel it into positive things like this film. I made this film from the anger inside me at the criminal justice system that we have. It should be a restorative justice system. People should go out. There's a farm in Mission, B.C. called Emma's Acres, and uh, prisoners will go get a day pass to learn skills, farming skills, and they do it with victims of violent crime. And there's a lot of healing that happens there. And so we need to, we need to understand that um, with, with this Invisible No More film, all of the people in the film, they overcame their brain injury, they overcame the stigma of their criminal record, and then they extended a helping hand to others. It's exemplary of the fact that this is possible, not only possible, but within our community. The more people that are contributing to that community, the, the more productive we become.
Do you think that's possible for everybody? Because I think why this film is really going to resonate with people as well is when you talk about things like 85 convictions and we hear about crimes that are committed and then we find out somebody has had 100 plus interactions with police. The the knee-jerk reaction for people is often to question, well, why isn't that person behind bars? Why is that person still allowed to be out and committing these crimes? But is it that reaction because we're not looking at, at the the whole picture and looking at really what the root is of why somebody is committing those crimes? You just hit the nail on the head. It's the root. When you're walking down the street and you see a homeless person and you walk by that person, take five minutes to talk to them. Ask them what's happening. They'll tell you a story that'll blow your mind. And you'll find out with every person, whether they're a criminal, uh, whether they're homeless, whether they're in a hospital, whether they're addicted, there is an underlying reason. Dr. Gabor Maté says that 90, he, when he worked at the Portland Hotel Society in the downtown east side, there wasn't one man or one woman that was his patient that hadn't been sexually abused, that hadn't been emotionally, physically abused. So Maté um, himself, um, you know, uh, grew up, I think, in uh, Hungary during the Nazi um, occupation. And he was abandoned by his mother at a very young age for his own safety. And so what happens is you take that personally as a child. The formative years in your life from one to seven are so important. And everything that happens to you in those years create the blueprint for what you're going to be like. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be angry and I'm going to hate every single person I meet because I got a raw deal as a child. It means I have a lot of work to do. But I have the greatest potential, too. Look at this event I put together. I did it by myself. I made this award-winning film. I got Dr. Gabor Maté to sit on a panel. I got MP Alistair McGregor. I got Mia Golden, who works with uh, the Victoria Police. I got Ben Geselbrack, the Nanaimo City Councilor, who's worked in both corrections and brain. They're all donating their time. I got Trevor Hurst from the Conaline Crush, who has uh, uh, transitioned to become a psychiatric nurse on a remote reserve in Manitoba. This is going to be a powerful movement. It's not just a film. And so I did this through, by channeling my, my, my anger into this project. I want so much to change the criminal justice. We have to do it. If we want to make our streets safer, we have to do it. There are going to be the Charles Manson. There are going to be the people that are maybe too far gone, maybe too deep, deeply entrenched in evil. But, you know, I really do believe that everyone deserves a second chance. And the way, again, we, we have to protect our children. Well, I know a lot of people are looking forward to seeing the film. Andy, we will leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.